It's um, my pleasure today to introduce our panel really very briefly. We've had a little technical difficulty, so I'm going to take the opportunity to just tell you briefly about communities and schools and why we think this session is very important. We are the largest dropout prevention organization in the United States. We work with about 1.3 million students in 3,400 public schools in 25 states in the District of Columbia. And our core business is to provide the student supports that remove all the non-academic barriers that young students, particularly those who are poor, um, show up to school with every day. Um, and we do that in the K through 12 space. So ecosystems are incredibly important to us. We pay very close attention to ensuring that young people have the conditions that are right for them to learn. And it's our job not just to remove the barriers that hold them from learning, but to search out those innovative ways that they actually can have accelerated learning or can keep up with uh, uh, their students in, in better resource schools. So today we have a terrific panel. I'm going to turn it over to our moderator, uh, who really does not need much of an introduction, Howard Gardner, other than it's my enormous thrill and something I'd like to say to him. His work has influenced greatly my own thinking and certainly our organizations, and particularly with kids that are disenfranchised who are often stuffed through kind of one particular way of learning. The contribution that Dr. Gardner has made with multiple intelligences has really created an ethos that allows for teachers and principals and parents to believe their kids can be gifted in many ways. And it's opened up lots of horizons. I think that may have been an, both an intentional and unintentional consequence. So it's my great honor, and I'd ask you to welcome uh, Dr. Gardner, who will introduce the panel. Thanks, Dan, and good morning, everybody. And I'm relieved to see that our other panelist is arriving. Welcome, welcome, Connie. Um, I'm, a, I'm a psychologist uh, at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and I feel very much in between our two panelists today. Um, Joel Klein has been the longest chancellor in modern times of uh, the New York City public school system, and working together with, with Mayor Bloomberg has really instituted changes, needed changes, which uh, are beginning to take hold, we learned this morning. And of course, the world is watching. Uh, and Joel, of course, represents uh, the world of uh, public education in America. Um, Connie Yao is the director of education at the MacArthur Foundation. And she told me yesterday she was a lapsed academic. <laughs> um, when, when Connie came to uh, the MacArthur Foundation some years ago, um, the idea of doing work in, the, in learning in the digital media and education was very, very new. We have in the audience uh, one of our mentors, John Silly Brown, who had something to do with that, with that focus. And now, as I think everybody knows, the, the MacArthur Foundation is really the world's leader in trying to think about the implications for learning, for education, and more recently for citizenship of the whole ensemble of uh, what we call the new digital media. So we have two worlds here, the world of education, the world of technology, which everybody knows need to talk, of, need to, talk to one another. But we also have probably the world's leading experts from those two areas uh, sitting on the other side of me, which is a good reason why I should not do much talking today. The panel is, uh, is unusual. First of all, it's called a tutorial, which means that we're here with tutors who are going to tutor us. Um, 
It's also unusual because, to be a little bit uh, uh, confessional, when I see most panel titles, even if I don't know much about it, uh, I kind of know what they mean, and I even know what people are going to say. When I saw this panel title, I wasn't sure exactly what a learning ecosystem is, and I suspected while that even people here who think they know what it is would write rather different answers to that question. And so the, the procedure is going to be somewhat unusual in that I'm going to turn the discussion over to Connie, who is going to tell us and perhaps show us um, her view of a learning ecosystem. Then I'll get uh, Joel's comments and co requests for clarification, perhaps some from <laughs> myself as well. Um, then we'll probably have a bit of a discussion from the dais. And then, as is usually the case, turn it over to you for Twitter-length comments. <laughs> After 140 words, uh, letters. Yeah. Uh, letters. Letters. That's it. So, Connie, over to you. Well, thank you, Howard. I really appreciate that. Um, we've had, this is uh, going to be a little bit different for me because I do have a full slideshow and deck to show you. But I have neither my computer in front of me nor uh, a thing to, to flip slides, nor can I see slides. Um, so I, this, is, this is unusual for me. So Nicole, can you put a slide up just so I can feel comfortable? <laughs> so, no, um, it, it wouldn't actually. Um, is it going to show up? So we started a couple minutes late because I really I have some videos I want to show you as well. And I have an Apple, and they have a PC, and it wasn't working. And I came by yesterday to make sure it worked, and now it's not working. And I'm going to talk to you about digital media, and the technology's not working. And that's how it always works, isn't it? <laughs> so is it going to show up back here? Because if it doesn't show up, I don't think people can see my airbook in the back there. I can't do the presentation without slides. How many Luddites are in the room? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you, it, this is really interesting. So, um, I, I, it's, it's such a visual presentation. I could wing it, but it really, and I can do a song and dance. I really don't have the videos? No. Joel's responding, so it's going to be really hard for him to. Uh, <laughs> I apologize for this, guys. We really did come in yesterday and do a whole run through. Um, oh, this is so exciting. Visuals. Great. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Nicole. Thanks, Jack. I really appreciate it. Oh, and I can see it there. This is great. OK. Hi, I'm Connie. I'm going to get started now. <laughs> Let's begin again. Are, so, we are we blocking the view? OK. Oh, you can't see. Oh, because you can't see up there. OK. Let's go. Thanks. Oh, that's the clipper? Okay, thank you guys. And I'm locked into this chair by this mic. Okay. All right, so I'm just going to storm ahead. Thanks for your patience, I really appreciate it. Now I have the cords wrapped around. And now this doesn't work. 
I have two small children, so I, I do have a good reserve of patience. There. Okay. Um, so where I wanted to start was just to say that there has been an, an extraordinary amount of talk about innovation and change across a variety of fields over the last 50 to 100 years, whether it's the automotive industry, whether it's in aviation, even in phones. I grew up um, uh, with the party line. I don't know if any of you remember the party line. That was even, that was my generation. And even in the last year, extraordinary, extraordinary change even in the book. And yet, um, even the president of Wellesley yesterday mentioned it in the three-minute idea session. We haven't seen a lot of change in schools in the classroom even in the last hundred years. Except, we're beginning to see extraordinary change in how young people learn outside of school. And that's part of what I want to talk about today. Um, I want to talk today, as we begin to talk about this question of learning ecosystems and what they may mean for schools, I'm going to talk today in three parts. The story I want to tell today comes in three parts. The first part is going to be about how learning is changing for kids outside of schools. The second part, is going to be what that means for innovation and change in institutions. And then the third part I want to talk to you about is what that then means for learning ecosystems and perhaps and possibly change in schools. But before we move into that, two pieces of background. And the first is I've, as I've been um, giving presentations different places around digital media and learning, it's really a bummer to get to the end of the presentation and have people ask me what, what I mean by digital media. So I thought I'd give a little bit of background up front. Digital media is sort of what you might expect. Um, the internet, social networks, mobile phones, video cameras, those are all the kinds of things. When I refer to digital media, that's what I mean by it. The other thing that's important to note is why digital media has, is having an extraordinary effect across a variety of sectors, just three big points that as background, it's important for everybody to know, and I'm sure all of you in the audience know this, but again, as I've been giving talks in other places, it's just important background. The first is it, it has occasioned an extraordinary shift in participation. You think about television, television is a broadcast mode. Um, it's a one-to-many, one person, really one big entity, often television. Producers are in charge of the message, they broadcast it out to many. The shift, whether it's Twitter or Facebook, and participation is that many people are in communication with many other people. It is, it's had a huge impact, as everybody knows, on journalism. It also has extraordinary impact on learning. I'm not arguing whether it's good or bad. I'm just letting you know that it has had an extraordinary impact. Second big impact is around production. As we all know, digital media has completely lowered the bar on production and the cost of production. Even our president, uh, at a recent uh, speech to National Academy of Science talks about wanting our kids to not be consumers, but to be producers and makers of things. We now have the digital tools that kids can be the producers and makers of things. Last big shift that digital media has occasioned is the shift to distribution, participation in networks. So kids can push a button on what they've produced, what they've made, and share it with millions of people. Not only can they share it, but they can get immediate feedback on what they've created. This has huge impacts for assessment because that feedback is a form of assessment. So these three things have completely can have the potential to completely change what learning looks like. Second big um, background piece, I don't know how many of you saw this headline in January of this year from the Kaiser Family Foundation. Their big study about how much time our kids are spending online. 
I don't know how many of you saw this headline and thought, oh my God, our world is going to hell in a handbasket. Our kids are spending too much time online. You can be honest, thinking this was a terrible thing. Bottom line of the study is that our kids are spending seven, seven on average, kids are spending between seven and a half to 10 hours a day online. First thing I thought when I saw the study was they're spending more time online than they are in school. Um, second thing that we thought, that I thought when I saw the study is that while media usage studies are terrific and important, they are just that. They just give us information on how many hours our kids are online. They don't tell us what they're doing. What MacArthur has funded, um, has also funded is a study to understand what kids, how are young people participating with digital media, which we think is a significantly more important question. Mimi Ito is here, she's sitting in the back and she'll be presenting, I think, tomorrow. Um, Mimi conducted a three-year ethnographic study with 25 other colleagues. It's the largest ethnographic study ever conducted in the United States on young people's participation with digital media. 700 kids um, across the entire United States looking at how they're participating with digital media. I will say up front, there's nothing more embarrassing than presenting the findings of another researcher's study in front of them, but I'm gonna do that right now. Couple of findings that I wanna say that are relevant for today and for what I wanna talk about um, from Mimi's study. The first is that there are at least two differences, or two different kinds of genres, Mimi would call them, two different kinds of genre for how young people participate with digital media. And she refers to these as friendship-driven and interest-driven. Friendship-driven is what you are all familiar with because it is what the media talks about and writes about constantly. Friendship-driven is what young people do in Facebook. David Fitzpatrick, I think, is talking right now at the same time about the Facebook effect, which is a book I've just finished reading. And in it, he describes exactly what Mimi found in her study, which is what the purpose of Facebook is for people to find out what their friends are doing. And in an ethnographic study of how young people use Facebook in these online social networks, it is indeed to take their offline world online. So what kids are doing in these friendship-driven kinds of communities is exactly what they do offline. It's nothing different. So whatever, whenever we read about what's happening in Facebook or in MySpace, it is exactly what they're doing in their social lives offline. So even the issue of bullying, we know kids bully offline. They're now bullying online. It shouldn't be a surprise to us. But what we don't hear about in the media, and if there are folks from the media here today, it would be great if you wrote some stories about this. What we don't hear about in the media is another genre of participation that the research found, which, has been, which we've referred to as interest-driven. Interest-driven participation is where kids are pursuing their interests and their passions. And it looks nothing like friendship-driven participation. It's very, it's high, it is highly social. And it's where kids are going into online communities to get better at things. It's where if they're interested in chess, they're going into chess communities online in order to learn different kinds of strategies, different ways of getting better at chess. It's where they're interacting with people who have greater expertise around any particular subject that they're interested in. These communities are cross-age. So where the friendship-driven communities, kids are online with kid, other kids who are exactly their age. The interest-driven communities, they're peer-led but peer in this instance, it's really important. We're not talking about sort of, when we talk about peers, we sort of envision hoodlums all of the same age who are causing trouble. Peer in this instance means people who are of the same interests. So it's cross age so that we have, it's like a pro-am community. People of different ages, different varieties of expertise who are all talking with each other, asking questions, exploring their interests in efforts to get better at something. 
And they're, very, and they're all self-directed. So let me give you a couple of examples. These are examples of interest-driven communities online. And I should say there are hundreds of thousands of kids in these communities. If anybody's familiar with the writings of John Dewey, these are the kinds of communities that John Dewey, a longtime philosopher of education, would be very proud of. This is an example. Kids love to write. Kids love Harry Potter. Turns out that kids love to rewrite Harry Potter and to take apart Harry Potter and to add whole new characters, add whole new chapters, add whole new sections to Harry Potter. So Fiction Alley is a site that has hundreds of thousands of kids in it. Um, and it's kid-led. They're young people who are running this site. I don't know if you can see this well. Kids can go in and talk. They can create. They can go in and um, see what other kids are doing. This is an example of a chat board. It's a forum where kids are all sorts of topics where kids can go in and figure out whether or not they want to write about the night bus. They can talk about Professor McGonigal's workshop. They're writing about different aspects and adding new sections to Harry Potter. This is an example of a couple of kids who are having a whole conversation about character development in Harry Potter. So it's not surprising that a Stanford professor recently found um, in a study that she did that not only is writing getting better amongst students, but that 38% of all the writing that kids are doing is happening outside of school. And that's what we're finding in these interest-driven communities. Chess is another example, science, there are tons of interest-driven communities. And so that's part, that's one of the core findings from looking at what young people, how young people are participating um, in digital media. So when I see that they're spending seven to 10 hours online, I'm not sure that I think that's particularly a bad thing. In fact, I think that there are extraordinary opportunities online for kids learning. Second big finding is how do they move into these interest-driven communities? It turns out that it's not, they don't just plop into an interest-driven community, but that it's a very social process. They start out by, hang, they're hanging out, they're in social communities with friends, with brothers or with sisters, and they see their brothers or sisters or their friends in an interest-driven community. They sort of see it, they get a sense of it, and they think, maybe that's something I'm interested in. They start messing around or tinkering. We don't always have so many opportunities for tinkering for kids these days, but messing around and tinkering turns out to be incredibly important in the learning process. They mess around, they tinker, they get a sense they might be interested in it and move immediately and then start moving into what kids call geeking out. This trajectory of hanging out, messing around, <coughs> geeking out turns out to be incredibly important. Third set of findings that I want to talk about. This is a backdrop. I just want, I'm going to be using this a lot, so I just want you to get a sense of it. The columns represent movement. Um, for this picture, the columns represent movement across home, school day, after school. Um, and then home again. So a different way of representing some of the things that I've just talked about um, in terms of kids learning. This is uh, learning across a youth's day. So what we're learning as we think about um, the findings from the Kaiser study and from the ethnographic study, the bottom here represents local community and it represents what we already know in terms of kids' movement. They spend the morning with the family, their classroom, School, they may go to the museum or zoo. In the after school, band, family. If you take a snapshot of a kid's day, if we also understand what we've learned from Kaiser and also from the ethnographic study, kids are also spending during that exact same time an enormous amount of time online. And we also know that each of these institutions and communities represent important relationships with people. And so we're beginning to map out what an ecosystem begins to look like for a kid. 
This is what their day looks like. This begins to be who they're interacting with and opportunities for learning. And if we take the ethnographic study seriously, we begin to understand that there are opportunities in this learning ecosystem across a youth stay for robust learning. And there's extraordinary potential here. And in part, particularly for the work that we've been doing, if we think about school, which is 14% of, of a kid's day, we'd start to think about learning as happening much more broadly. And so we move away from talking about just education and wanting to talk much more broadly about how to influence a young person's learning opportunities, which is across this broad swath of a learning ecosystem. But not all news is good news. So the research also tells us that there are some problems with the learning ecosystem. And you can, by looking at this, a couple of things come up. First, if you look up at the top, it turns out there are very few adults in the global part of the ecosystem. There are very few adults involved with the kids up top. That's one problem. Second problem is that when we talk about hanging out, messing around, and geeking out, it turns out that really only about 10% of the kids are making it into the geeking out, the deep learning opportunities. 95% of the kids are in the hanging out and messing around. We're not getting the kids into the deep geeking out, and that may be because there aren't adults up there as well. Third big problem is fragmentation. What happens, the learning that happens in any of these sites, if we're really lucky and we have good schools like we have in Chancellor Klein's district, we have connections between school and home and people in the family knows what's going on in the school and vice versa. But the rest of these bubbles, no connections. So what happens here, nobody knows. And the skills that the kids are developing here, nobody knows about. So there's no transparency or connection in the system. Third big issue, ooh. Uh-oh, how do I get rid of that? Oh, cool. Third big issue is an issue that I would call almost a gap in culture of learning, is that there is no connection in learning between what happens above the line and below the line. <coughs> I face mirror. So that if we talk about the kind of learning that is happening in the interest-driven communities, it looks like this. We talk about the kind of learning that's happening in the traditional, in the institutions, it looks like that. And so when we talk to the kids, we've done, we've done focus groups with well over 100 kids in Chicago, similarly with over 100 kids in New York, and we talk to them about the institutions that are in their ecosystem and the relevancy, not a single kid in any of those focus groups lists any institution as relevant for their lives. They can talk about school as relevant, of course, but not a single one, not a single kid, if you ask them what's relevant for their future, will list a public institution, which is a problem for their ecosystem. And so what we've, and it's also a problem because if we want to bring adults into the global communities, the adults are in the institutions and the resources are in the institutions. And so now I'm going to move out of part one of the, of the story that I'm telling today which is a story about how kids are learning outside of school. And I want to move into a conversation about institutional transformation and change. Because in part, we have to start thinking about if we want to really take advantage of the opportunities in the learning ecosystem, we have to also start talking about institutional change. Because the institutions in the learning ecosystem are not relevant for kids from the kids' perspective. And we've got to start figuring that out. And so I want to, I want to give you examples from three institutions that are really trying to grapple with that. I'm sorry, I keep pushing the wrong button. 
So the three institutions, I'm going to start with the museum. Hi back there. So the three institutions, I'm going to start with um, a museum. And this is a field museum, which is in Chicago. And what we've done, um, each, of these each of these stories of institutional change that I'm going to show you, each one, it's very simple. They've all agreed, they've all adapted the vision of learning that joins on to the interest-driven approach. And they all have partnered or teamed up with and are drawing from the expertise of other institutions within the ecosystem. And so this is a story of a field museum, which is in Chicago. It's collaborating with Wyville, which is an online world that um, has over 3 million kids in it, and Global Kids, which is an online after-school program in New York. And let, I'm going to have let them tell you a little bit about the work they're doing. Can you make that play? Hmm? Really? So remember, as they're figuring this out, so remember that institution, that museums, Couple things about museums. So museums are places where um, that do a fairly that are places where people come to go and sort of passively consume or look at information. Typically, um, for most museums, when a youth comes into a museum, that youth is if an unaccompanied youth comes into a museum, it is not an unusual experience for the youth to be accompanied then by a security guard. Um, and it is also museums are places. that curate objects. Are we getting lucky? None of my videos are going to work? I'm getting over the shock. Give me a second. <laughs> Okie dokie. Okay. So these are really cool projects. So one's a project in a museum, one's a project in a library, and one's a project in a school. Um, and if I can have my slides back up, then I'll just run through it really quickly. And I'll run through my point really quickly. Okay. So here's what I want to tell you.
I'm just going to tell you the story of one example. Can you get rid of that little thing there? Thanks. So I'm going to tell you the story of Umedia. I'm just trying to think if it's on YouTube. So I'm just, I'm just going to tell you the story of Umedia. So Umedia um, is a space at the Chicago Public Library. Chicago Public Library is the largest physical library in the country. And it is um, it's led by a chancellor of uh, Chicago, commissioner of Ch uh, Chicago Public Libraries, Mary Dempsey. And Mary Dempsey basically said, you know, I have no youth coming to my library. They only come on school visits when they have to. And I don't know what to do about that. She had a 4,500 square foot space that was empty. She was using it for storage. And she said, basically, do something with this. I, can you do something with this and help me figure this out? And so um, thinking about the ecosystem for young people, partnered with bringing in folks who understand games, folks, a digital youth network program um, in Chicago that understands uh, how to work with music, how to work with uh, graphical design and how to work with youth. Work, I'm getting fingers in the back. Working together with librarians and youth, they created an entirely new space in the Chicago Public Library that was for teens only. And the idea behind the space was not that it was a space for, that it's as a space for kids to come and play with digital toys. The idea is that it is a space for kids that has uh, both teen librarians and mentors. And it is a space where kids are coming and they're actually using the content of the Chicago Public Library as context for the things that they're making and remixing. So what we have is a space where kids are actually using the content of the library, the books and the music, to remix and to make. Not sure what this is. Oh, it's a video from YouTube, okay. Eleven months ago, Julia and Connie approached us and said, we have this idea, and we think that Chicago Public Library might have the same vision we do for how you take digital media and you incorporate it into a wider learning opportunity for kids and for teens. And what you see tonight, 11 months later, is that creation come to fruition. This space was really the brainchild of the MacArthur Foundation. MacArthur did the concept, the design, the build out, but the Pearson Foundation brought us the technology and they are an invaluable partner of this. This is not just a fun place for kids to play. This is a real place based on rigorous research that we are putting to the test. We are in New Media, which is our new space for teens in our central library, the Harold Washington Library Center. What happens in here is creativity. It really allows the library to be seen by teens as a place where they can give a full license to their creativity, whether it's in uh, their love of literature, poetry, music, um, or their desire or interest in using technology and digital media to express themselves creatively. It sits at the hub 
downtown. It sits across from at least four to five universities. It sits at the intersection of all of our public transportations. And it sits in a place where every kid, regardless of where they live in the city, can come. It also sits on the ground floor of a vast uh, array of resources, books, uh, music collections, video collections, a hub of information about the history of Chicago and the history of the world. And one of the things we learned from the kids is that, in many respects, school is a node on their network of learning. And so part of what we've been trying to do is to think about how do you build the infrastructure for a young person's network of learning? They're learning anywhere, anytime. And it turns out the library is one of those spaces. We were very upfront about no matter how we designed the space, the most important thing would be the quality of the mentors and the librarians encourage students to take advantage of the space. Well, growing up on the south side of Chicago, uh, kids need an outlet to express themselves. If, if they don't have that outlet, they turn to the alternative. So this space gives kids the, the outlet that they need. I mean, they can pretty much come down here and construct some type of media to express themselves with. So if kids like to do graphic arts to be more creative, or if kids like, like to make movies or music videos or write songs, do poetry, they, they have a space where they can come down here and do that. things we've learned from the research is that kids learn best when they're following their own interests and their own passions and we think every kid that walks in the door is going to have their own interests and passions. As soon as they start pursuing their interests they're going to have a set of questions and want to get better at something and that's the hook, that's the connection to a mentor who can say you know what here are some things that you can do. My future goal is to be a music producer and to start off in hip-hop but not just staying there like forever. I want to go into different genres and learn about everything, so I just won't be stuck in one mindset. I think making sure you present students with the challenge of not just saying go deep into one field, one trajectory, so do more than just be an expert music producer, but also spend some time on your writing, spend some time exploring video production, game design, etc. So I think even if they don't do any of those, you know, five years from now, in terms of exploring a career path, there's definitely a skill set and a disposition that's built there that comes out of that process. So we try to maintain that um, in our programming in whatever context it may be. It really changes what the library means inside the community and what it means for the kids who come here. It used to be, I think, that kids would come to the library to take information and bring it home. And what we think now is that the kids will be bringing information to the library and using the center here as a way to be able to distribute and share what they know with other kids, other kids who come to the center and other kids in the city. Yes, I'm Prince Rock, I'm about to go on. Yes, I'm, I'm about to show you that my boat is never can it be your stop. Yes, I'm higher than the sky, and I am too fly, and my feet nothing. things I want to tell you about that. So in a place that actually had no kids coming in, once the teen library was created, once the U Media space was created, there are more than 100 kids coming a day from across the entire city. Um, with more than, it also has a virtual online space that is designed around interest-driven learning called Remix Learning that um, has more than 1,000 kids in it. Um, and I'm going to skip through this uh, because we don't have the video and close out part two of the conversation, which is to say um, that part of what, a couple of things that, that you would have seen in the other two examples, but that you're seeing in the UMedia example, 
is that one, what, ha what happens across all of the three examples that I, that I would have shown you and that is true of the U-Media is that two things. One is that all of the institutions in order to move into ins dramatic institutional change use, are understanding a new vision of learning and two, they're pulling expertise from across the learning ecosystem. And these are all the partners that were involved across the learning ecosystem involved in the U-Media, the library transformation. And so part of what we're learning around institutional change is what we've been learning around innovation. So Kareem Lakami, who's someone who's been studying innovation in the sciences, has argued and has found that innovation comes not from new ideas within the same field, but rather the application of ideas from adjacent fields to an existing field. And so what we're seeing in the innovation of the library, for example, the innovation didn't come from within the library field, but it came from the adjacencies. And those adjacencies are from within the ecosystem. And so part, and it's true for the, for the uh, museum example that I would have shown you. So part of what we're learning, and this is the ecosystem for learning for kids, is they're pursuing their interests. Part of what we've learned from the innovation in institutions is that not only does the ecosystem of learning for kids exist as an ecosystem for learning, but that we're beginning to learn that it is also a platform of innovation. So what do I mean by that? So a platform for innovation, if you think about just the iPhone, the iPhone ostensibly is just a device, it's a phone. But because of the resources and assets that Apple made available to developers, it is also a platform for innovation. And so developers have begun to make applications that applied to the phone make it a better phone. And what we're learning about the ecosystem for learning is that it is also if given the right resources and assets to those communities and institutions involved in the ecosystem, that they can begin to become also innovators on that platform so that you have almost a, virtual, a virtuous cycle. It is both a site for learning, but it also becomes a place of innovation. So let me give you a concrete example. So now moving into part three and then I'll be done. Led by Diana Roten in New York, the Social Science Research Council, we've invited 13 institutions to become a part of beginning to think about what it would mean to build an ecosystem, a connected ecosystem in New York. These are the 13 institutions that are involved. If anybody's from New York, if you look at that list, you immediately begin to think these are very different institutions. So one of the core things about an ecosystem is that none of the, the, the members of an ecosystem are very different. That's absolutely critical for innovation and it's critical for an ecosystem and it's critical for kids learning. Secondly, all of the members, all 13 members bought in, have bought into a common vision of learning. It's the interest-driven learning and the principles that I've, I've showed you on some of the slides. Third, they all have common incentives around participating in, in an ecosystem. One is they understand the disconnect between the global community that I've shown in the ecosystem and their, and their concern about their relevancy. Secondly, they all understand, they've seen new media, they've seen in an ecosystem that's successful, there have to be beacons. There have to be institutions that represent what the future can be. Um, some, there are some schools, Joel has worked, has been working with a school called um, the School of One. There are other, a school may be a beacon, the new media, the library site can be a beacon. We're working on building other beacons in New York, but there have to be institutions that represent a, f a future vision that they all can be working towards. Um, the museums are also worried about their relevancy in the future. So there are m many incentives for their participation. 
Third, there are a set of resources, whether it's, um, and they're all worried about digital media and their future, and so we have provided a set of resources for them to be collaborating across all of the institutions. And so what does it look like for them to begin to work together in the way that UMedia has begun to work together? So we've asked them all to begin to think about how they might start to work together. Here's an example in, in New York. They call themselves a new youth city ecosystem. Um, Cooper Hewitt, which is a design museum, is working with the public library, is working with global kids, a whole set, a peer group, as well as an online game called Manhattan. So they are beginning to work together to begin to build projects very much like the UMedia example that I showed you. Another example is CityLore is working with the New York Hall of Science, is working with Remix Learning, is working with other. So you can begin to see, and I can explain to you what these projects are, I don't want to go into great depth, but they're extraordinary projects, very much like UMedia, that are mobile, that are social networked, that with adults working across sites, that deal with transparency, that are bringing adults into the conversation, that are working across multiple institutions. And they continue to grow. And it's not uncommon, actually, we're doing this in New York, in Chicago as well. Actually, kids are starting to come to us with ideas for how they want to build out the ecosystem. And so not only is this becoming a much stronger and more robust ecosystem for the kids, but it's becoming a site and a test bed for innovation. So what does it have to do with the schools? The final question is that they become a test bed for new learning and innovation for the schools. So that each of the institutions have traditional relationships with the schools. The New York Hall of Science works with over 10,000 kids in schools, as does the American Museum of Natural History, another partner. So as we begin to build out new applications and new projects, we can test them so that there are research, there are research partners involved in each of these projects. These are dramatically different approaches to learning that's being tested in each of these, in each of these projects. We get to understand how successful they are or not. In order to bring any of these into the school system requires incredible change. Schools don't, as Chancellor Klein knows, schools don't allow mobile phones. They don't allow social networks. If we're gonna start bringing in dramatically new kinds of learning into schools, it seems to me that we should have tested them, that we should have a much better understanding of how successful they're gonna be before they move into schools. So these become the test bed for moving new projects into schools. And so all of the partners have begun to talk about, once we've tested these and have the evidence that they're worth bringing into schools, how they'll then work with their partners to bring them into the schools. And so we begin to have an innovation flow with schools as part of the ecosystem for learning. And that's the model that we've begun to work on both in Chicago and New York, and I will stop there. Wow. Oh, I have one more slide, one more slide. The final slide goes to John Goodlad, which is to say, all new ideas are never such new ideas. In 1984, he started, he's talking about how an ecosystem is absolutely necessary for learning. And while this, because of digital media, actually, I would argue where it's the first time that we actually have the opportunity to implement it. There. Now I'm done. I think I'm probably speaking for the audience in saying you've given us a wealth of ideas, terms, not as many images as you hoped, yes. but enough to uh, give us a feeling for the very ambitious and promising enterprise, enterprises that, that, that you've been involved in. And 
simply hearing about kids and how they're spending their time and what are not high priorities for them, and then thinking about the, the wealth of institutions which exist in the society which are increasingly, which have been increasingly remote for these kids, gives us some sense of the challenge of creating uh, an ecosystem where things connect for kids, for those who are officially involved with their education, teachers and parents, and then for the many other institutions which potentially can be involved, but uh, the, the right mixture is just beginning to be discovered, and the Chicago and the New York examples, I think, will be well worth, well worth watching. Um, a big word in the past has been systemic thinking, but now we have to do echo-systemic mm -hmm. thinking. And as a punster, I can't help thinking about the ECO, but also the ECHO, because unless for kids, what they're doing in their social networks or in their geeking out connects to what's happening in school, what's happening in the city, what's happening in various uh, institutions and media, then the potential would not be realized at all. Of course, we all want to hear Joel's thoughts about this. And uh, Joel, of course, has been chancellor of the New York City Schools for eight years. But he had a life before that as a, a public official in government, as a lawyer, uh, uh, and as a law clerk as well, and also as the executive um, uh, of a large media company, Bertelsmann. So I'm going to encourage him to wear as many of those hats as he wants as he tells us what was the stream of consciousness that uh, went through your head as you heard and watched. Sure. Well, first of all, Howard is a man of many intelligences. That's what he's written about. I'm a man of many careers because I couldn't hold a job. So I have a lot of different perspectives on this. But let, me, let me first of all say I think I want to thank Connie. I think, I think in a way you glimpsed the future. There's a tremendous amount there. This is very rich to eat at one meal. The real set of questions, and they have several dimensions, is how do we make this transition in a way that changes the way instruction takes place, not just inside the schools, but really in what Connie is calling a larger ecosystem, how we bring to bear the various pieces so that we make it work for our kids. But it, from my point of view, as, as somebody who runs a school system, the first challenge which was alluded to, and I think is really important, is how do you create an environment where innovation becomes part of education? Mostly in, in education right now, innovation and education are almost never used in the same sentence. And those of you here this morning, I mentioned this notion. I mean, you know, for as far back as anybody can remember, we have one teacher, 25 kids, they get a textbook, you know, they get some worksheets, and that's the model. And in a prior life, when I was a lawyer, I used to represent the American Psychiatric Association, so I had to have a psychiatrist joke. And my favorite psychiatrist joke was always these old light bulb jokes, and mine was, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? The answer is only one, but the light bulb really has to want to change. And you see, that, that, the, the, what I've learned about the school system, so you like that, Bob? Thank you. What I've learned about the school system, uh, you, you can use it without attribution. But what I've learned about the school system is it really doesn't want to change. Right? If you don't have a system that wants to think very differently about the, the way that Connie and others are thinking about this, then it's not going to happen. And I, I don't have enough time to list all the massive resistances 
to bringing in new and different ways of learning into the system. But one of the things we're now doing through partnerships and otherwise is to think about, for, for example, we've there are people developing platforms out there in which basically you can learn math through an online platform that is going to be so superior to the average delivery of math content that takes place in most classrooms in New York City. And there's no reason not to connect that to the instructional mission and have people involved in learning in very different ways. This school of one thing, now think about this, because this is a big idea, and it's in its early phases. In fact, if you've got the Atlantic Magazine, they put in your little orange bag that they gave you when you checked here. There's a couple of three-page article on this. But basically, what we've now done is instead of thinking of one teacher, 25 kids, we've got each kid and looking at that individual profile, moving kids at their own pace, some learning online, some learning in small groups, some working together with each other in a social network, but taking on different challenges in different ways, constantly monitoring. Okay, I'm seeing I'm told we're gonna start the Q&A, so let me just put a wrap on this. Constantly monitoring the different ways kids learn and let them move at their own pace and different. So I've got some kids now who are doing these video games that they love. But in order to become king of the universe, which is a goal that everybody should aspire to, in order to do that, <laughs> queen, these kids, or queen, it's fine with me. It's a, in order to do that, you've got to learn increasingly hard mathematical challenges and solve increasingly difficult mathematical uh, equations. And so as a result, you're incentivizing for some kids ways to learn. Then we study and develop an algorithm for each child, just the way Google develops an algorithm. And in part of my past, uh, as some of you may know, in a career-ending move, I sued Microsoft, and that's why I became a school chancellor. But I was always had algorithm envy. And now we've got an algorithm that we use to see how different kids learn at different paces and different ways. And we also are able to see which content works. We're also able to have our teachers highly specialized so that they don't have to teach every single one of 180 different lessons in the course of a year, but to focus. And what we're seeing now is much greater differentiation, driven by the fact that you can pair modalities, not just a single teacher modality, pair the way kids learn, and constantly improve this algorithm to drive change. Now, what Connie's going to try to do as well is to integrate that beyond the six and a half or seven hours that kids are in schools to try to increase the networking across so that the learning experience doesn't become a temporal one. Now, there are a million issues here. There are legal issues about cyberbullying and everything, which we're now in the middle of in New York. And probably one of the most interesting challenges, how do you create a market to enable these changes, assuming the school system is wanting to change, to drive change? So when I was at Bertelsmann, one of the things I, I was responsible for was dealing with how we basically domesticate Napster. And we also had a music company. It was quite apparent to me that the music company loves selling CDs with 16 you know, songs on, on one CD and sell them for $15.99 or $18.99 or whatever. And it was as obvious to me as anything that that model wasn't going to continue to work. But it was working in the short term for the music company. And the same problem we face now with the textbooks. So I meet with the textbook companies and I tell them that in five years, we're not going to see textbooks in public schools, certainly not in New York City. But yet, right now, they don't want to catalyze their existing business. And so as a result, you know, textbooks are sticky. 
you can make a lot of short-term money on them. So how you create the environments, both within the school, in the partnerships, and ultimately in the market to drive this kind of change. But I want to tell you, if somebody who's looked at a lot of things in education, what's happening in terms of the way kids learn, our ability to use technology in a very different way, and ultimately to try to generate something that really people thought was unimaginable, which was to create an environment where innovation became part of the educational ecosystem, something that has been highly resisted in multiple ways. I'll end with my favorite story on this, because it'll, it'll give you just a small sort of input, uh, insight into what I'm talking about. So in New York City, we, we create a lot of new schools and so forth, and I found that there were a lot of kids in schools where only two or three wanted to take an AP, Advanced Placement course, and we couldn't afford to give them a teacher, but there's some really great online courses in AP. So however, we have a rule in New York State that says you can't get credit for a course unless you have a teacher in front of you. So here was the conundrum, right? So I went up to Albany and I said, I did this for every year for six or seven years. And I said, look, I got these kids, they want to take the AP course online. And if they pass it, they get college credit. So we should give them high school credit if they pass it. And if I got to give them a teacher, they won't be able to take it. So the people would always say to me, say, well, look, the rule is you got to have a teacher to get high school credit. I said, I understand that. That's why I came up here to get a waiver. I said, because, no, you're, you're laughing, but this is a real world. And, and I didn't make this presentation once. I did it a handful of times. I said, I came up here to get a waiver so that these kids could take the course. And after all, if they get college credit, it must follow us the night and the day they should get high school credit. And so they said, well, that's not the way it works in New York State. So this gives you some sense of the dimensions of the challenge. And finally, to end on, on a realistic note, is in addition to all of that, some of these new approaches, as we roll them out, they're not going to work well. And we've got to be prepared for an environment in which change, you know, for all the great things that have happened with the internet, there have been a lot of failures as well. And we've got to be prepared as we make this transition to understand that not everything we will do will enable us to spin straw into gold. But this is a glimpse into a future of an entirely different approach to the way kids learn. Let, let me simply say that uh, one of the wonderful things about the MacArthur Foundation is it's actually trying to look at what succeeds and what doesn't. In the past, it's been much easier to get money just for technology than it has been for systematic research on what's effective and what's not. And you're right, a lot of it will not be effective, though sometimes the ineffective things will be very revealing. I have one more question for each of you. I'm going to tell you what it is, and then you can think about it if you want, while we take a few questions from the audience. And that is, you know, the role of teacher, as you say, has been pretty unchanging for a long period of time. Looking ahead in the next decades, what do you see as the new roles which will emerge to keep this ecosystem from exploding? Um, but I'm sure there are lots of hands, and I will try to recognize at least a few before we have to close. Gentlemen there? Um, The ideas you just put forward is the union cooperating with you. Yeah, you know, it's like everything else. There are times when we disagree and times when we agree. But on some of these ideas, we have been working with the union. The whole notion of why you require to teach in order to get credit was obviously an antiquated feather bedding notion that we had to move through. And now the state is much more amenable to new and different ways. 
I think they, that they're finding, and I think the union will support this, they're finding that the use of these technologies will empower teachers. I'm gonna get back to Howard's question, which we'll wrap up with, but the evolving role of the teacher, and one of the things, uh, after my morning discussion, a teacher came up to me, and I really appreciate it, trying to think about how we make teachers become change agents in the educational system. We've created a culture in which this is a demand-pull kind of transformation, and we've gotta figure out a way to engage teachers in both becoming empowered, but to become change agents in the system, and technology can do this. I'm convinced of it. Yes, all the way back there. Yeah. Uh, I just had a question about how you all envision um, the, the evolving functions of schools, especially as we move closer into the, or further along in the 21st century. And um, some of the pushback that you spoke to, Klein, I imagine is from a, sort of a lack of understanding of how some of the old school thinkers incorporate technology into schools because of one key reason, and that's assessing the learning process. And um, if you all could speak to those two things. So how do you, how do you emerge the two, how do you merge the two worlds, right? Because what you all discussed was the process of learning and from an educational sort of administrative perspective, the assessment of that learning is what matters in terms of dollars and you know, uh, sort of a systemic approach. So I, I'm curious as to what you think about those things. Um, I think it, both in the near and in the long term, assessment's gonna change dramatically. So what we see um, outside of school, um, so if you think about assessment as feedback as well, what you see in the online world is young people clamoring for feedback and assessment. You actually see them um, getting very upset when they don't get it. So in a world that's around participation and production and kids are actually making things that they care about and producing and creating, they wanna know how to iterate and make it better. So whether it's the writing, whether it's a science project they're working on, whether it's a media production, they immediately want feedback and they can get it from peers in, these peer, in the um, interest-driven communities. And so we also, so we see that as, as um, something that's absolutely critical. Um, in, the, in, in the game world that Joel was even was talking about and in a school that we, um, that's been created in Joel's iZone called Quest to Learn, which was one of the videos, um, Games have also embedded assessments inside them, so that part of it is if you master a task, you know that you've, you get feedback immediately from within the game. So that the digital media is also providing kids, players, people who are learning with immediate feedback in ongoing ways. And so as we begin to move that into schools, we'll have much less of a need for those in the assessment community, call it drive-by assessment, where you get it at the end of the year, but it's not particularly helpful to assessments that are immediate and ongoing so that kids can actually get better at what they're doing in real time. And that's how I see the integration starting to happen. The, the whole apprenticeship master mentor um, analogy, which has been so important for learning throughout history, I think needs to be raised in consciousness now for those people who are in charge of assessment. I'm thinking of Judith Fabian here, who's from the International Baccalaureate, and I hope at some point during the uh, festival, you'll be able to hear her thoughts on this. Other questions, comments? Yes. Chuck. And then back there. I'm interested in the implications for minority and poor kids. 
Uh, Connie, do you think this will widen or close the, uh, the gaps? I think without intervention um, and without the kinds of things that we're seeing, um, U Media Space in Chicago and others, uh, right now we have an extraordinary, we have concerns around a, what I would call a participation gap. So for example, I think in the, the 90s we talked a lot about an access divide. Um, and I would say that we have much less of an access divide now and we have a participation divide, which is to say that we have kids um, with access to technology who are consuming, but have not moved into the, in the words of the ethnography, into the geeking out phase and have not really learned how to part participate and produce. And that's at, that is across race, class, and gender, and that's what our concerns should be about. And so without either moving this work into schools or into the institutions at the local, on the ecosystem where, with the adults, we have, a, we have real concerns around divides, around so, race and class. So two quick comments on that. I mean, the one thing we seem to know quite well from all the research is the most important thing in a kid's education is the quality and effectiveness of his or her teachers. And when it comes to that, we also know kids who grow up in high poverty neighborhoods are disproportionately getting teachers who are not particularly effective. So there's an enormous gap there that reinforces any other achievement gap. If we use technology, technology effectively and we have ways that engage kids in differentiated modalities, I think we're gonna be able to close that uh, gap. And it also, if we do this intelligently, we should be able to raise, in a significant way, raise the quality of our teaching force by helping to empower them and understand teacher doesn't have to do everything. It's nuts to think a teacher is going to do 180 different lessons each year and nail them. I mean, it's just, and particularly, you know, first year teachers in very struggling environments. And why don't we get intelligent about the way we do this and do a much more integrated, effective approach? When I see it happen in school at once, so I've got teachers who are doing the Pythagorean theorem, but she's doing this instead of her 25 kids, I've got 90 kids. Some of them are up to the Pythagorean theorem, and so she's doing them with them each day for three, four, five, six days in a row, and so she's actually become very proficient at that. And we'll, we'll start to think about this as if we actually cared about the results we got, not simply about the inputs we have. Um, Jay? So at the Harvard School of Public Health, we've been running a media campaign to recruit volunteer mentors for at-risk youth. And today there are some three million volunteer mentors around the country. And my question is, because I saw mentors up on your slides from time to time, what are the opportunities to, because one of the most important barriers to recruiting volunteers is people say, I know mentoring is important, but what do you do with the kid? And if you can match adult and child around shared interests mm -hmm. and shared passions, um, this concept of the interest-driven uh, community is incredibly powerful. Yeah. And I wonder how you see mentoring becoming yeah. integrated within that. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, there are several actually. And so I actually think that um, in many respects that becomes in part the backbone of the ecosystem and is absolutely huge. Um, Nicole Pinker is actually sitting in front of you, and Nicole has done an extraordinary amount of work in this area and has been part of the UMedia work and is building out a whole set of online work at, in Chicago as well around the mentoring, um, as is a woman named Jean Rhodes at uh, University of Massachusetts at Boston who's 
one of the country's leading experts in mentoring and is developing a whole set of systems and we're working with her as well. But I think that that's, that's one of the cornerstones that's gonna have to happen around this and is absolutely critical. Um, and it actually begins to bridge, um, there have been a whole set of issues around the mentoring, um, both as you said around what to do with the kids, but also around geographic location and how to match that, but both because of the digital online world and if we can match around interests, those things start to fall away. And it becomes actually what I think is a keystone for, for making this work. And there are models, and I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Yeah, let me make a brief comment here. Uh, you know, the oldest joke about the internet is on the internet, nobody knows that you're a dog. Um, mentoring doesn't have to be from somebody who's older. It just has to be somebody who's more expert. That's a um, Copernican shift uh, in many, many spheres. But in the work we've been doing, which is uh, in the ethics of the new digital media, and that's a whole other topic, there really is a hunger among young people for people who can tell them about how to think about things like trustworthiness, ownership, um, what it means to participate in a community. And there, it's less likely, on the average, that somebody who's younger than you is going to be able to provide guidance. So that's a place where, again, the ecosystem has to mm -hmm. take advantage of whatever wisdom may exist yep. among the people who aren't so good at tweeting. Um, yes, I think we'll take the last question from the floor there, and then we'll have the one more question from the audience. Woman in the center. Yes. Dr. Kathy Klug, Aspen Public Schools. Um, I wanted to ask Dr. Gardner to go back to his original question, which is please, uh, both of you, describe for us the new 21st century teacher. Because what I'm finding is uh, there's a bigger gap even to our, uh, than our student to student gap is um, our teacher education gap. Mm -hmm. And what we're finding is we're the ones not prepared for the 21st century role that we need to take. And so I'd be very interested on your perspective on how to prepare our teachers better for their new role in this uh, marriage of digital um, and educational requirements for the, uh, the century that's already here. Right, and that, that is the question, in fact, that we want to end on. But let me simply say, with the passage of time, of course, teachers will be much more sure. uh, digital natives. Um, there may still be a gap, but it won't be particularly um, acute. I think the issue which we're all struggling with is what kind of new roles, whether they have the word teacher in it or not, do we need to help people navigate this ecosystem, particularly since we know generations are so short now, and five years ago we would have been talking about an entirely different set of technologies than we're talking about today. So, Connie? I'll Joel jo go first Joel? and then I'll pick oh, okay, Joel. Sure. So this is a good question and on in, in several ways. First of all, we do have a challenge, and it's, but it's a leadership and it's a management challenge. And it, it happens in all organizations. You know, now it's at Bertelsmann, transforming Bertelsmann to a digitally sort of informed organization. Those are, are questions. And, and one of the things I want, I want to I've sort of touch on, I just want to leave you with this thought. The role to school reform is littered with good ideas poorly implemented. And if we don't understand the role of leadership and management in transforming complex social organization, we're going to miss the boat. Those words are kind of verboten in the edge-of-speak world. You know, people sort of say, well, that's technocratic. But in fact, that's mission critical. So how we get, if, you, if your teachers don't buy in, this doesn't happen. And so it's a really a, a massive challenge. 
Second and third points that I want to kind of wrap up as, as I finish, go back to what I see the role of the teacher, and it has two dimensions. One, I'd be remiss in not pointing out, we were joined today by Justice O'Connor, who has been really driving this role of education in civic preparation. You know, the future of our democracy is gonna depend on something other than people just being able to get online and into social network groups. Values, a sense of history, a shared commitment to what it means to be an American. And these are critical things that she is driving, and I believe whatever else happens, the teacher is gonna to have to be at the fulcrum of what Martin Buber calls the I-thou relationship. I don't know about any other school system, but my kids in New York depend enormously on human interaction with adults in the system. And whatever else goes on here to help the instructional mission, mm -hmm. there is another function that we have to be cognizant of, and in that regard, it just seems to me that's one that we've got to make sure our human beings are terribly engaging, because at least in the Bronx and in Brooklyn and so forth, the kids depend upon that enormously. And I, I just remember so many times sitting down with kids and having that discussion in a way that's very, very powerful and transformative. And that, I see, is at the heart of what the educator's role is going to be in a highly souped-up, technologically-driven instructional system. So three things that I would add in addition to uh, Chancellor Klein's recognition of, of Justice O'Connor um, is that, uh, and so one is, as we've done all this work in digital media, is one is, is acknowledging how absolutely critical the face-to-face -face is, um, and that's not ever going to change. And, and so that's absolutely critical in terms of teacher's role. But one is we've got that it won't be Sage on the stage and it won't be one teacher standing in front of 30 kids. That absolutely can't um, remain. As we think about what's happening in the business world, um, people are working in teams and they're collaborating. I see teachers moving in that, that role as well. So I see them working in, in teams and collaborating, um, and collaborating with students. I think um, the mentoring metaphor is an important one to hold for teachers. I think their role will be as important in helping kids navigate the ecosystem as it will be in managing content and other, the other roles that they play now. Third, I think that understanding that teachers, I think we right now expect teachers to do everything. And part of the value of an ecosystem is to be able to pull expertise from across the ecosystem and we should expect teachers to be able to do that as well. Part of what we see happening in Chicago is actually that the teachers don't have to be as digitally literate as one would imagine. That they can either turn to the kids or they can turn to other aspects of the ecosystem to pull that digital expertise. They have to be experts in the kids, and they have to be experts in understanding whether or not the kids are progressing and being able to develop those relationships with the kids, as Joel has responded to. And if they can then manage the resources of the ecosystem to make sure the kid is progressing in a team and collaborative way, then we've got the best of both worlds. So I see the teachers much more in a mentoring collaborative role, having expertise around certain content areas. I don't think that's going to go away. And man helping kids manage the ecosystem and managing their trajectories along pathways. There are many people in the audience who could have contributed knowledgeably to our topic, mm -hmm. but we're fortunate to have had, as I said at the beginning, probably the two most knowledgeable people about American public education on the one hand and uh, learning and citizenship in the new digital media on the other. It's great to have them together. It's great to see the worlds talking to one another. I think we have a better sense of eco-learning Though also, I think we have a sense of how complex and what an, an unfinished story it is. 
to end on a hopeful note tied to the last question. In research we did with young people about whom do they trust the most in the world, right after their parents came their teachers. And uh, I think that's a solid basis on which to build. Thank you all. Have a good lunch. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.